Chapter 5 of the French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. The French Revolution by Robert Madison Johnston. Chapter 5 France Comes to Versailles. At the beginning of May, 1,214 representatives of France reached Versailles. Of these, 621, more than half, belonged to the Third Estate. And of the 621, more than 400 had some connection with the law, while less than 40 belonged to the farming class. Little preparation had been made for them. The king had continued to attend to his hounds and horses, the queen to her balls and dresses, and Necker to his columns of figures, his hopes, and his illusions. But the arrival of this formidable body of men of trained intellect in the royal city, now that it had occurred, at once caused a certain uneasiness. As they walked about the city in curious groups, it was as though France were surveying the phenomenon of Versailles with critical eye. At the very first occasion the courtiers, feeling this, set to work to teach the deputies of the Third Estate a lesson to put them in their place. On the 4th and 5th of May the opening ceremonies took place, processions, mass, a sermon, speeches, and the court's policy, if such it could be called, was revealed. The powerful engine known as etiquette was brought into play to indicate to the deputies what position and what influence in the state the king intended they should have. This was perhaps the greatest revelation of the inherent weakness of Bourbonism. The system had, in its decline, become little more than etiquette, and Louis the Sixteenth, seen hard at work in his shirt-sleeves, would have shattered the illusions of centuries. And so, by means of the myriad contrivances of masters of ceremonies and court heralds, the Third Estate was carefully made to feel its social inferiority, its political insignificance. The Third Estate noted these manifestations of the court with due sobriety, and met the attack squarely. But while on the part of the court this way of approaching the great national problem never attained a higher dignity than a policy of pinpricks, with the Third Estate it was at once converted into a constitutional question of fundamental importance. Was the distinction between the three orders to be maintained? Was the noble or priest a person of social and political privilege? Or were the deputies of all to meet in one assembly and have equal votes? That was the great question as the Third Estate chose to state it, and, translated into historical terms, it meant no less than the passing of the feudal arrangement of society in separate castes into the new system of what is known at our day as democracy. Nearly all the cahiers of the Third Estate and many of those of the noblesse had demanded this measure, and the Third Estate, on assembling to verify the mandates of its members, immediately called on the other two orders to join it in this proceeding. The struggle over this point continued from the 5th of May to the 9th of June before any decisive step was taken. But as the days went by, apparently in fruitless debate, there was in reality a constant displacement of influence going on in favor of the Third Estate. In the opening session the statement of affairs made by Necker had left a very poor impression. Since then the ministers had done nothing save to attempt by a feeble intervention to keep the orders apart and all the time the Third Estate was gradually becoming conscious of its own strength and of the feebleness of the adversary. 
and so at last, on the 10th of June, CAS moved Mirabeau supporting that the noblesse and the clergy should be formally summoned to join the Tiers, and that on the 12th, a verification of powers for the whole of the States General should take place. Accordingly, on the 12th, under the presidency of the astronomer Bailly, senior representative of the city of Paris, the Tiers began the verification of the deputies' mandates. On the 13th, three members of the clergy, three country priests, asked admission. They were received amid scenes of the greatest enthusiasm, and within a few days their example proved widely contagious. On the 14th, a new step was taken, and the deputies, belonging now to a body that was clearly no longer the tiers etat, voted themselves a national assembly. This was, in a sense, accomplishing the revolution. So rapidly did the tiers now draw the other parts of the assembly to itself that on the 19th, the clergy formally voted for reunion. This brought the growing uneasiness and alarm of the court to a head. Necker's influence was now on the wane. The king's youngest brother, the Comte d'Artois, at this moment on good terms with the queen and Marie Antoinette herself, were for putting an end to the mischief before it went further and they prevailed. It was decided that the king should intervene and should break up the state's general into its component parts once more by an exercise of the royal authority. On the morning of the 20th of June, in a driving rain, the deputies arriving at their hall found the doors closed and workmen in possession. This was the contemptuous manner in which the court chose to intimate to them that preparations were being made for a royal session which was to take place two days later. Alarmed and indignant, the deputies proceeded to the palace tennis court close by, the Jeux de Pomme, and their heated discussion followed. C.A.S., for once in his career, imprudent, proposed that the assembly should remove to Paris. Mounier, conservative at heart, realizing that this meant civil war, temporized and carried the assembly with him by proposing a solemn oath whereby those present would pledge themselves not to separate until they had endowed France with a constitution. On the 23rd, the royal session was held. A great display of troops and of ceremony was made. The deputies assembled in the hall, and the king's speech was read. It was a carefully prepared document, announcing noteworthy concessions as well as noteworthy reservations, but vitiated by two things. The concessions came just too late. The reservations were not promptly and effectively enforced. The king declared that for two months past the States General had accomplished nothing save wrangling, that the time had therefore arrived for recalling them to their duties. His royal will was that the distinction between the three orders should be maintained, and after announcing a number of financial and other reforms, he ordered the deputies to separate at once. The king then left the hall supported by his attendants, and by the greater part of the nobles and high clergy. There followed a memorable scene, to understand which it is necessary to go back a little. On the arrival of the deputies at Versailles, they had at once tended to form themselves into groups, messes, or clubs, for eating, social, and political purposes. An association of this kind, the Club Breton, so called from the province of its founders, soon assumed considerable importance. Here the forward men of the assembly met and discussed, 
and here, filtering through innumerable channels, came the news of the palace, the tittle-tattle of Trianon, and the Earl de Boeuf, the decisions of the King's Council. At every crisis during the struggle at Versailles, the leaders of the assembly knew beforehand what the king and his ministers thought, and what measures they had decided on. All that was necessary, therefore, was to concert secretly the step most likely to thwart the royal policy, and by eloquence, by persuasion, by entreaty, to cajole the great floating mass of members to follow the lead of the more active minds. The king's speech on the 23rd of June was no surprise to the assembly, and the leaders were prepared with an effective rejoinder. So when Louis the Sixteenth left the hall after commanding the deputies to disperse, the greater part of them kept their seats, and when Dreux-Brézé, master of ceremonies, noting this, called on the president to withdraw, Bailly replied that the assembly was in session and could not adjourn without a motion. The discussion between Dreux-Brézé and Bailly continuing, Mirabeau turned on the king's representative and in his thundering voice declaimed the famous speech which he had doubtless prepared the night before. We are here, he concluded, by the will of the people, and we will only quit at the point of the bayonet. At this, de Brézé withdrew and reported to the king for orders. But Louis had done enough for one day and the only conclusion he could come to was that if the deputies refused to leave the hall, the best course would be for them to remain there. And there, in fact, they stayed. Immediately after this scene, Necker sent in his resignation. On the morning of the 24th, this was known in Paris, and produced consternation and a run on the banks. To reassure the public, Necker was immediately reinstated, on the basis that Louis should accept, as now seemed inevitable, the fusion of the orders. On the 25th, a large group of nobles headed by the Duc d'Orléans and the Comte de Clermont-Tonnerre joined the Assembly, and a week later the Assemblée Nationale was fully constituted, the three orders merged into one. During the two months through which this great constitutional struggle had lasted, the assembly had had a great moral force behind it, a moral force that was fast tending to become something more. The winter of 1788-89 to had been one of the most severe of the century. There had been not only the almost chronic shortage of bread, but weather of extraordinary rigor. In the city of Paris, the Seine is reported to have been frozen solid, while the suffering among its inhabitants was unparalleled. As an inevitable consequence of this, riots broke out. In January, there had been food riots in many parts of France that taxed severely the military resources of the government. They continued during the electoral period, and were occasionally accompanied by great violence and when the deputies assembled at Versailles there was behind them a great popular force, already half unloosed, that looked to the States-General for appeasement or for guidance. 
The procedure which the Third Estate and National Assembly stumbled into gave this popular force an opportunity for expressing itself. The public was admitted to the opening session, and it continued to come to those that followed. From the public galleries came the loudest sounds of applause that greeted the patriotic orator. The Parisian public quickly fell into the way of making the journey to Versailles to join in these demonstrations, and soon transferred them from the hall of the assembly to the street outside. Mirabeau, C.A.S., Mounier, and other popular members were constantly receiving ovations, and soon learnt to convert them into political weapons, while members who were suspected of reactionary tendencies, especially the higher clergy, met with hostile receptions. And all this, well known both to court and assembly, was but a faint echo of the great force rumbling steadily twelve miles away in the city of Paris. The leaders of the assembly did not scruple to use this pressure of public opinion of popular violence for all it was worth, and placed as they were, it was not surprising that they should have done so. The deputies were only a small group of men in the great royal city garrisoned with all the traditions of the French royalty and five thousand sabres and bayonets besides. It was natural that they should seek support then even if that support meant violence, lawlessness, or insurrection. Thus Paris encouraged the assembly, and the assembly Paris. The ferment in the capital was reaching fever heat just at the moment that the assembly had won its victory over the orders. The working classes were raging for food. The bankers, capitalists, and merchants saw in the States General the only hope of avoiding bankruptcy. The intellectual and professional class was more agitated than any other. The cafés and pamphlet shops of the Palais Royal were daily more crowded, more excited, and on the 30th of June the army itself began to show symptoms of following the general movement. The regiment of French guards was a body of soldiers kept permanently quartered in the capital. The men were, therefore, in closer touch with the population than would be the case in ordinary regiments. Their commanding officer at this moment was not only an aristocrat but a martinet, and he completely failed to keep his regiment in hand. Trouble had long been brewing in the ranks and culminated in mutiny and riot at the close of June. Making the most of the state of Paris, Many of the mutinous guardsmen took their liberty and refused to return to barracks. Clearly, what between the accomplished revolt of the Third Estate, the incipient revolt of Paris, and the open mutiny of the troops, something had to be done. Necker's return to the ministry had been imposed on the court, and although his policy of accepting the fusion of the orders was followed, his influence really amounted to little. The Queen and the Comte d'Artois soon plucked up courage after their first defeat, and took up once more the policy of repression, but as it was now apparently useless to attempt to stem the tide by means of speeches or decrees, they persuaded the King that force was the only means. By using the army he could get rid of Necker, get rid of the National Assembly, 
and reduce Paris to order. Accordingly, the Marshal de Broglie, a veteran of the Seven Years' War, was put in charge of military matters, and an old Swiss officer, the Baron de Besenval, was placed in immediate command of the troops. Regiments were brought in from various quarters, and by the end of the first week of July the court's measures were developing so fast and appeared so dangerous that the assembly passed a vote asking the king to withdraw the troops and to authorize the formation of a civic guard in Paris. The king's answer, delivered on the 10th, was negative and peremptory. His troops were to be employed to put down disorder. At this crisis, the action of the Assembly and of Paris became more definitely concerted. The government of the city had been in the hands of a somewhat antiquated board presided over by a provost of the merchants. It was too much out of touch with the existing movement to have any influence, and felt its impotence so keenly that it would willingly have resigned its power. At the time of the elections to the States-General, the government had broken up Paris into sixty electoral districts for the sake of avoiding the possibility of large meetings. These sections, as they were called, had formed committees, and these committees, towards the middle of June, had been coming together again informally and tending towards permanence. On the 23rd of that month, with disorder growing in the city, they had held a joint meeting at the Hôtel de Ville, the townhouse, and the municipality had given them a permanent room there, hoping that their influence would help keep disorder under. When, on the 11th, the news reached Paris that Louis had refused the Assembly's demand for the withdrawal of the troops, the Central Committee of the Sections took matters into its hands and voted the formation of a civic guard for the city of Paris. On the same day, the king, now ready to precipitate the crisis, dismissed and exiled Necker, and called the reactionary Breteuil to power. On the 12th, Paris broke out into open insurrection. It was Camille Desmoulins who set the torch to the powder. This young lawyer and pamphleteer, a brilliant writer, a generous idealist, almost the only reasoned Republican in Paris at that day, was one of the most popular figures in the Palais Royal crowds. On the 12th of July, standing on a café table, he announced the news of the dismissal of Necker, the movement of the troops on Paris, and with passion and eloquence declaimed against the government and called on all good citizens to take up arms. He headed a great procession from the Palais Royal to the Hôtel de Ville. The move on the Hôtel de Ville had for its object to procure arms. The committee of the sections had voted a civic guard, but a civic guard to act required muskets. The troops of Besenval were now pressing in on the city, and had nearly encircled it. In a few hours, Paris, always hungry, might be reduced to famine, and the troops might be pouring volleys down the streets. The soldiers of the French guards, siding with the people, were already skirmishing with the Germans of the king's regiments, 
for the army operating against Paris was more foreign than French, and the Swiss and German regiments were placed at the head of the columns for fear the French soldiers would not fire on the citizens. Royal Etranger, Reinach, Nassau, Esterhazy, Royal Allemand, Royal Cravat, Diesbach, such were some of the names of the regiments sent by Louis the Sixteenth to persuade his good people of Paris into submission. No wonder that the crowd shouted when Desmoulins told them that the Germans would sack Paris that night if they did not defend themselves. On the night of the twelfth to the thirteenth, Paris was in an uproar. Royalist writers tell us that gun shops were plundered by the mob republican writers that the owners of guns voluntarily distributed them besenval lacking instructions from broyi and hesitating at what faced him had done little or nothing but paris intended to be ready for him if he should act on the following day on the thirteenth the disorder and excitement continued the committee at the Hôtel de Ville took in hand the formation of battalions for each section of the city, while Besenval still remained almost inactive at the gates. On the 14th the insurrection culminated and won what proved to be a decisive victory. At the east end of Paris stood the Bastille. It was a medieval dungeon of formidable aspect armed with many cannon and dominating the outlet from the populous Faubourg Saint-Antoine to the country beyond, one of the mouths of famishing Paris. It contained a great store of gunpowder and a garrison of about one hundred Swiss and veterans. The fortress had an evil reputation as a state prison, although in July 1789 its cells were nearly all unoccupied, Popular legend would have it that numerous victims of royal despotism, arbitrarily imprisoned, lay within its walls. So it was a symbol of the royal authority within Paris, a threat or reckoned so to the Faubourg Saint-Antoine and the free movement of food supplies from the east end of the city, a store of guns and ammunition. For all these reasons the mob undisturbed by Besenval turned to attack it. The first effort was in vain. Although the garrison of the Bastille, except its commander, the Marquis de Launay, was disinclined to fire on the mob, and was so short of provisions that resistance was useless, the attackers succeeded in little more than getting possession of some of the outbuildings of the fortress. The musketry which the governor directed from the keep proved more than the mob cared to face but the first wave of attack was soon reinforced by another. From the French regiments of Besenval's army a steady stream of deserters was now setting into Paris through every gate. A number of these soldiers and of the men of the regiment of the French guards were drawn to the Bastille by the sound of the firing and now took up the attack with system and vigor. Ailly, a non-commissioned officer of the Queen's regiment gave orders supported by Hulin, Marceau, and others. Two small pieces of cannon were brought up, the soldiers and some few citizens formed elbow to elbow, the guns were wheeled opposite the great drawbridge in the face of the musketry, 
and at that the Bastille gave up. De Launay made an attempt to explode his magazine, but was stopped by his men. The white flag was displayed, the drawbridge was let down, and the besiegers poured in. Great disorder followed. De Launay and one of his officers were massacred despite the efforts of Ailly and the soldiers. The uproar of Paris was intensified by the victory. At the opposite side of the city there had been another success. The Invalides had been taken and with it thirty thousand muskets. With these the civic guard was rapidly being armed under the direction of the committee of the sections. The Hôtel de Ville was the centre of excitement, and the provost of the merchants, having lost all authority, was anxious to surrender his power to the new insurrectional government. Late in the evening he too was sacrificed to the violence of the mob, and, drawn from the Hôtel de Ville, was quickly massacred by the worst and most excitable elements of the populace. End of chapter 5